Amen. This is the day that the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad with it. Amen, church family? It's good to be together here in the house of the Lord this morning, and uh, my goodness, my heart has been tilled. Huh? Whew, wow. Thank you so much, uh, worship servant team, uh, for bringing us uh, just into the gates in praise. And if you are new here today at Windsor Road, is uh, I want to echo what uh, Magdi Ozer just said a little while ago. Uh, whether you're a longtime member here or first time, we want you to feel very welcome here at Windsor Road. And uh, my name's Randy, and it's my privilege to be the lead minister here at the church. And um, um, we'd love to get acquainted with you. One way that we can do that is uh, just in the pouch in front of you or a series of cards. And if you're feeling new and uh, you uh, want to touch base with us, you can let us know what that is. If you are, have been here for a little while, uh, there's a next step card. And then there's also a prayer card. If you have any encouragements or prayer requests, we want to hear them. We want to hear them. And my wife Sarah and I and our elders and some of our staff will be in a hospitality area called the fireside room uh, it's through these glass doors and to the right and just would love to uh, have a little bit of time uh, to meet you and uh, to hear a little bit about your story and to get get acquainted together here at the church all right uh, so in our teaching time here as a worship service we uh, typically go through a book of the bible and uh, right now we're in a series over the a New Testament book of Hebrews, the New Testament book of Hebrews. And um, so we're in a little memory recitation project, okay? So if you're new here for the first time, I just want you to enjoy what it is we're going to do here just in the next couple of minutes. We're memorizing as a congregation here this month the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 and today we're going to go through partway through verse 3. Uh, it goes something like this. We can put the words up on the screen here. Long ago, come with me here, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom also he created the world he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power now let's go through those three verses again we're adding verse 3 all right, and then we'll slowly just kind of chip away at some verses, but uh, in just a few minutes, we're going to have this thing cold. I know it. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Okay, let's knock away some words here. Here we go. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's wonderful. Knock away a few more words. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our prophets, our fathers by the prophets, sorry. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Okay. Are you ready? All right, let's do it, okay? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Yeah! Huh? Amen! Woo! Amen. So listen, if you're new here, you may be thinking, why are y'all doing this? Here's why. Who is holding you up right now? If the answer's not Jesus, you need another plan. And he's the plan. Because there's going to be a time in your life where you're going to feel like you're falling apart. You, you, you're going to find yourself having to go to Barnes. You're going to find yourself having to go to Northwestern. You're going to find yourself having to go to Mayo. Why? Because you're that sick, that's why. And while you're there, you're wondering, how am I going to keep together? Or I tell you what, if you want to really feel helpless, you're trying to take care of that person that you've got to take there. And you're wondering, how, how am I going to keep this together? You're not, but he is, because he upholds the universe, not by his biceps, but by the word of his power. Amen? That's why we memorize God's word, okay? So, today, we're going to take a look at a passage uh, in Hebrews chapter 2. But first, I want to tell you about a marathon runner. His name is Henry Wanyuke. Uh, Henry Wanyuke. Henry Wanyuke from Kenya, destined to become one of the greatest runners uh, that Kenya has ever produced. Uh, it was clear in the 1980s uh, that his abilities and talents put him in an elite Olympian class, and he was recognized quickly because of his ability to run long distance. Uh, but all of that, all of that 
uh, seemed to be derailed at the age of 21. Henry went to bed one night with sight. He woke up the next morning 95% blind. He had a stroke uh, during the night, and uh, he could not see. Uh, he could barely, barely see. What, whatever 5% vision looks like, that's what he had. And naturally, then, he began to suffer from depression and loneliness. He could barely get around in a world uh, where it seemed that the lights had gone out. Henry enrolled at a school for the blind. One of the administrators there at the school recognized him and got him running again. Got him running again. In Paralympics-style events, blind runners, as you can see, are tethered to a guide uh, on the wrist to indicate subtle course changes. And so Henry went on to break several world records in the marathon. In fact, he got so good that one of his challenges was the fact that his guides couldn't keep up with him. Right, and so finally, uh, I think he. This is one of his closest friends, lifelong friends. He's the only person who could keep up with him, and uh, because of his success in racing, Henry eventually held public office in Kenya and advanced the work of the visually impaired. What Henry learned was this: it's not what you see with your eyes. That's most important. It's what you see with your heart. It's what you see with your mind. It's what you envision. Henry learned what we all must learn, and it's this. Vision is more powerful than sight. Vision is more powerful than sight. Like Henry, like Henry, all of us need one another. We need someone to come alongside of us and get us running again, to, to get us going, to encourage us to do more than we think that we can do. And it's this, it's this guide's very presence that encourages us. And I think that's what the Hebrew uh, preacher is getting at. I think that's what the book of Hebrews is about in our study. 2,000 years ago, a preacher wrote a sermon to a weary, beleaguered little house church or network of house churches in quite possibly the Roman Empire, Rome, Italy, and they were tired. And he, he, this preacher loves this congregation. And, and wants them to keep running the Christian race. This church is tired. This church is feeling on the margins. This church has suffered persecution. But this preacher, listen to me, loves this church too much to say, now they're there, they're there. This preacher says, let's go. Lift up holy hands in prayer. Strengthen those sagging knees. Fix your eyes on Christ. And so what we have in the letter to the Hebrews or the sermon to the Hebrews is this, 
manuscript, this sermon manuscript, if you want to know what New Testament preaching was like 2,000 years ago, we have it here in the sermon to the Hebrews. Delivered by a preacher who for some reason could not be with this beloved congregation but wanted to encourage this congregation to endure. And what this preacher teaches us is that a compelling vision of Jesus Christ will encourage us to endure. Does anybody here need some endurance today? Anybody need perseverance? Of course we do. We're here for that reason. And what we learn here is that vision is more powerful than sight. So you want a vision of Jesus today? Well, meet me in Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 5 to 18. Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 18. Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 18. I'm, I'm going to put a tag on this message. We see Jesus, our warrior king. And brother priest. Say that with me. We see Jesus, our warrior king, and brother priest. I want you to listen for themes of uh, rescue, themes of uh, sibling, brotherly love. I want you to hear themes of pre a priest to go between. I want you to hear themes of a royal king who has come to rescue his younger brothers and sisters from a prison that we would not be able to get out of on our own. That's what I want you to be hearing here. We see Jesus, our warrior king and brother priest. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are one. That's what it literally says, are one. And that's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death 
were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of God. Amen. Amen. So so this passage that we just read talks about Jesus as the crown prince, the, the elder brother of a large family, the family of God, the father creator of humanity. And, this, and so our elder brother, crown prince, saw that his younger siblings, that's us, were in deep trouble. And so he took on the responsibility to conduct a search and rescue mission. And yes, a search and destroy mission to the enemies of his siblings. And he left the security and splendor of court to find us so that we could rejoin him around the family of God. That's just what we read, wasn't it? Yeah. So these verses don't give us three steps or four tasks or seven strategies. Not going to find that here. We just have one major indicative truth. And I've already given it away in the title. We see Jesus, our warrior king and brother priest. So, So this truth invites us to a revived situation. This truth invites our weary and exhausted heart to be revived and hydrated through the eyes of faith. Here is our God. I want you to taste and see Jesus, our warrior king, our warrior king. So these verses tell us what our warrior king did, and then he's our brother priest, a phrase which tells us why He did it, and that's where we're going today. See Jesus, our warrior king. See Jesus, our brother priest. And here's the deal on this. Listen, you cannot be what you cannot see. So you look to Jesus, our warrior king. You look to Jesus, our brother priest. And as we do that and fix our eyes on him, undistracted, staying off the rumble strips, We stay focused on him and become like him. I want you to first see Jesus, our warrior king. That's in the first 10 verses, 5 to 10 in this passage of scripture. Jesus, our warrior king. Now, I feel like that we are sitting in on the preacher as he's he's already started his sermon. Right, And so we come into chapter 2, and it's, it's already started. It started back up at chapter 1, verse 1. But what the theme of Hebrews is, is you know, we fix our eyes on Jesus because he's better. 
He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses and Joshua and Melchizedek. That's the flow. Better than the tabernacle system. He offers a better way of life, all right? And here in the first two chapters, he's still making his point. He's better than the angels. And so in, in Hebrews chapter 1, why, why we learn about why he's better than the angels. He's, he's the, well, we quoted it. He's the son. He's the heir. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the exact imprint. He's the purifier. So in chapter 1, I mean, I feel like we're just soaring. You ever had one of those dreams where you feel like you're flying? Is it just me? But you, you, you wake up like, ah, that's where we are in chapter 1. We're just soaring above the heights. There's, there's no God apart from the Son as we see the divine nature of Christ. That's chapter 1. We're just soaring above in chapter 1. And then what happens, and this is intentional, this is intentional. The preacher then does a dive, plunges into the depths of our world in chapter 2. So the son who was above creation, above the angels in chapter 1, in chapter 2, plunges, dives into the, the below the angels, into the, the muddy mess and muck of humanity by taking on human flesh. So Jesus is better because he's fully God, chapter 1. He's better because he's fully human, chapter 2. And, and, and the preacher gets at this uh, in the first few verses uh, of our uh, text where he says, it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? So the preacher is quoting Psalm 8 in Hebrews 2, verses 6, 7, and 8. He's quoting Psalm 8, and Psalm 8 was written by King David, who marveled at the glory of God as he surveyed creation, and then he marveled at the dignity that God the Creator has given humanity to reflect His image. We are unique because we have been created to be God's image bearers. As ancient kings would place statues of themselves throughout the empire to put the empire on notice of who is sovereign, we are God's living statues bearing his image throughout all of earth. God has placed us globally throughout all this earth to convey the truth that he exists and he is the ruler. And so God forbids graven images because we are to be his images on earth. And so David says in Psalm 8, Oh, as I consider the work of your hand, as, as I, I'm in awe at how immense this world is, and even as, you know, God, thy ocean is so great, and my boat is so small, and yet, God, you've bestowed dignity upon us. You've crowned human life with glory and honor. You hear the images of royalty there? We have glory and dignity and sanctity because God created us. Male and female, he created them in the image of God. He created them. That, that, that's what Psalm 8 originally says. We have dignity because God has made us to bear his image. 
Hmm. Well, if that's true, what happened? Huh? Sin happened. Right? That's, it's just that old-fashioned preacher word. Sin happened. Sin is self-centeredness. Sin is selfishness. Sin is what happened. And, uh, you know, ironically, in Genesis 1 and 2, humans were created to rule over angels, and yet it was an angelic being, Satan, who persuaded Adam and Eve to rebel against God. And in, listen to this, instead of judging Satan, which is what Adam and Eve had the authority to do, they had, the author, they had been given the authority to rule. That was their commission. And, and, and instead of taking Satan by the ear and taking him to the tree of uh, life and judging him and trees, were often venues for judicial rulings in the ancient world. Instead of taking Satan to the tree and judging Satan and then expelling Satan, what did they do? They listened to Satan. They followed Satan. And they rebelled against God. And that's why this world is broken. And, and the extent to this brokenness, there is not a crevice of creation that has not been affected by sin. Well, into this brokenness, Christ came. And I mention all this because the preacher makes a pivot now. So the preacher was talking about all humanity. That's the original of Psalm 8. But now the preacher begins to talk about a specific human, a particular human. Do you see it? Now in putting everything in subjection to him, who is that? That's Jesus. So in verses 8 and 9, the preacher gives a Christ-centered interpretation and commentary on Psalm 8. And so, so see, we're beginning to learn how to read the Old Testament. You read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus Christ. And so, so this Jesus, for a little while, was lower than the angels. Christ, our warrior king, plunged into the war of human sin, the general put on private, a private's uniform. That's what happened. The general put on a private's uniform. And, and Jesus wasn't just a tiny bit lower than the angels. So he didn't just come to the threshold of humanity and just kind of dip his toe into the water. Oh, no, 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 no. He plunged. He tasted death for us. And as a result, he was exalted to the highest place. He, nothing is outside of his control. Though tested and tempted, he was without sin. He was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So Jesus is the one human that got it right. One author calls this, and we've talked about this, the J-curve. And that, that's really a wonderful image of our faith, of what Christianity is all about. The J-curve depicts 
that the eternally existent Son, who was above the angels, put on flesh, and descended below the angels into our sinful world. He suffered and died, but in his bodily resurrection, he has been crowned with glory and honor. He is our warrior king, even more than before. I like how one uh, scholar put it. The Son, here it is, the Son through whom creation was made became the Son in whom creation is redeemed and becomes the Son by whom creation is ruled. Through whom creation was made, in whom creation is redeemed, and by whom creation is ruled. And here's the thing, you must know this. Just like the early life of Jesus, the J ends higher than it starts, right? And, and that's the pattern not only of Jesus' life, but our lives, of our everyday moments. Hebrews teaches us that the J curve is the shape of the normal Christian life. And our lives mirror Jesus' life, right? We say that we want to passionately pursue Christ as part of our vision statement at the church. But Hebrews tells us that if you live for Christ, sometimes for reasons we just don't understand and, and won't on this side of heaven, we will be led into some kind of suffering. And yet in that suffering, evil is weakened or killed and as a result of that suffering, you're changed to look more like Christ. So, so God does not waste a hurt. He takes our hurts and he uses those hurts to shape us so that we become more like Jesus. And one day, that's the promise, as, as our Lord was exalted on high in a body. Listen, listen, Jesus is not experiencing cosmic retirement in the heavenly realm. He is reigning and ruling on high. There, there is a human in the heavenly realm. His name is Jesus. He is the God-man. He's the glorified God-man. Amen? Yes. And, and so that's our destiny. That's our destiny, church. Now, faith, listen to me, faith is living like you're already there. Faith is living like you've already risen. Faith is the act of imagining and living out what your resurrection body will be even when you're in your old body. And, that, and so that explains why verse 8 says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. It does not say, at present, everything is not in subjection to him. What's it say? We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So the preacher's not naive. He says, I know, I know, I know, I know. When you read the papers on Monday morning, it hardly seems like Jesus is in charge. Yet we have not seen everything there is to see. But here's what we see. Jesus. Jesus. And so look at verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. And then it says, namely, Jesus. So that's the first time the name Jesus appears in Hebrews. 
We're in about halfway through chapter 2. And the, the preacher says, Jesus! Jesus! The warrior king. Not, he's not just any king. He's the, he is our champion king. Our warrior king. So he came to earth not to inspect what was going on, but to unshackle the imprisoned. That's why verse 10 says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That verse 10, you can just circle verse 10, that's Christianity in a sentence. God's heart is to bring his sons and daughters to glory. And the means is suffering. So, so the end is glory, the means is suffering. The God by whom and for whom all things exist should make his son, Jesus, suffer. His suffering, our glory. His suffering, our glory, should make the, and there's a beautiful word here, it's a beautiful word, uh, uh, the, the, the English Standard Version says founder. It's a, it's a rich word. I'm going to give you a new Greek word today. You not only memorized verses 1 through 3, but you know a Greek word. Is this amazing or what? On 3, I want you to say archegos. Archegos. 1, 2, 3. Archegos. 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 The commentaries cannot make up their minds how to translate this word. Because depending on what translation you have, uh, it'll say founder. Leader, pioneer, trailblazer, crown prince, hero, Hercules, yeah, champion, warrior king. Which is it? The answer is yes. Yes. All of it. All of it's there. See, here's the idea. The idea is representative combat. Representative combat. I'm thinking of 1 Samuel 17. In 1 Samuel 17, when the Israelites fought their arch enemies, the Philistines, Goliath, this hulk of a soldier, belches out, let's settle this one-on-one. -on -one. Send your best soldier out here and I'll fight him. Whoever loses, the other nation will, will become servants. I mean, Goliath was, you know, Goliath. I mean, he is a giant. And the Israelites are, you know, like, any volunteers? Crickets. Okay. I'm not going out there. I'm not, I'm not going. All of a sudden, a voice. I'll go. It's David. A shepherd boy. And he took to the battlefield <laughs> with a sling and five stones. No armor. Now, at first he tried armor on. I said, I can't get that. This isn't going to work. Uh-uh, no, no. I'll just take my sling and five stones. He didn't even need five. It's just one. It was a one-shot kill. Right? The stone, Scripture says, the stone sank into Goliath's forehead, and it was over. It was over. Representative. Now, what is the meaning behind this? Well, a lot of preachers will preach it this way. In your battles against the giants of life, you just need more faith. You, know, you may not be big in yourself, but with God on your side, you can defeat the giants. We can do better than that. Yeah, because he is better than that. 
See, see, that's not the point of 1 Samuel 17. The, the point is archegos, archegos, representative combat. See, in the story of David and Goliath, you're not David and neither am I. Well, who are we then? Well, we're the Israelites. <laughs> we're, they were, we're on the sidelines, man. I mean, I need some, I can't do this. I need help. God provides help. God provides a substitute. But when David steps up, he's not a full-grown man. He doesn't even have his dad body yet. I mean, he, he's vulnerable. He, he's weak. He's young. He steps onto that field virtually as a sacrificial lamb. But God uses David's seeming weakness as the means to destroy Goliath. David becomes Israel's Archegos, champion redeemer, warrior king, and his victory is credited to them. David does the work, Israel gets the benefits, and God gets the glory. Now that's church, amen? amen. And so just as David went to the field, Jesus took the field of humanity. Just as David was the weak substitute, Jesus' death on the cross was God's weakness overpowering the strength of man. It's, it's God's foolishness outwitting the wisdom of man. And so what the preacher does is he teaches us that God has brought glory through the suffering of his son. He who, he, who eternally existed on high descended into our mess so that in his death, burial, and resurrection he might trailblaze, pioneer a path to heaven. Jesus has paved the way to heaven. His Holy Spirit lives within us to keep us as a, his guide along the way, we just need to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. And we're never going to be able to outrun the Holy Spirit. See. Amen to that beep. Right? He's our warrior king. That's what he did. Now quickly, why would he do this? Why would he do this? Well, that's where we want to talk about our brother priest. For he who sanctifies, that's verse 11, and those who are sanctified are all of one. So, so Jesus put on flesh. He identified with us. He came to us. Verse 14 says, since the children share in flesh and blood, he too partook of the same things so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil See? Uh, hey hey Jesus did not come to earth to make peace with Satan he came to destroy Satan to render Satan powerless ineffective and, and he, why did he do this he did this well, he did this because the text says he's not ashamed of us that's why our brother priest is not ashamed of us He's, he's our elder brother. See, he gets us. He loves us. I love this thought. I love this thought uh, I read in the devotional this week. I want you to imagine if we gathered together all the believers throughout history and lined them up for a massive family photo. What, whom would we see? Who would be in that photo? Might surprise you. We'd find people with a lot of unflattering stories. Uh, some would be known as the chief of sinners. That's Paul. 
There's the, there's the adulterous woman, John chapter 8. There's the thief on the cross, who the thief really means a terrorist. He was a terrorist on the cross. There was a prostitute. We'd also see those who were overlooked and disregarded by society. We'd find weak people unable to give God anything. We'd, we'd even see those who wore the uniform of opposition to God. Here in this portrait of grace, we'd find a multitude of misfits, and that would be the picture. Now, if that were your family, would you hang it on the wall or would you hide it in the attic? Oh, I'll look closer at that picture, though. Zoom in to the center. You see the middle? See who's there? Jesus. He's right there in the middle. Kind of seems out of place, huh? This, this, in this panorama of redemption is Jesus, the perfect Son of God, wedged shoulder to shoulder with people marked by depravity. And, and here's what you'd see. You'd see that he is right where he wants to be. And so in this, these verses, we, so in chapter 1, in every Old Testament passage, God the Father is speaking to God the Son. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. I will be to him a father. He will be me a son. In chapter 2, in these three Old Testament passages, the son replies to the father. See, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So Jesus gathers God's people in worship. He teaches us to sing together to the Father. He teaches us to worship. And, and he's standing in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. So he's not high and detached and unconcerned like the Greek gods who would frolic on Mount Olympus and eat olives and drink wine and occasionally look down on us mere mortals when they're bored. No, our God has skin. And our God can sing. And our God is not ashamed to sing with us because he calls us his brothers and sisters. I will sing your praise. And then he says this, I will put my trust in him. I will, why, why did he say that? Because on the cross, Jesus was still trusting his father. He who did not deserve death trusted his father to the point of death. God, I'm going to trust you in the worst of my circumstances. I'm going to trust you in my darkest hour, in my season of loneliness, in my bankruptcy, in my divorce, in my career loss, in my cancer, in my unemployment. I will put my trust in you even when I at present do not yet see everything. There's never a moment of time when I'm alone when you are in the midst of the congregation. Oh, Jesus. Our brother priest himself suffered when tempted, so he can help us when we are tempted. And so we come together here today celebrating our merciful and faithful high priest, our brother priest, who purifies us and cleanses us. Anybody need a clean conscience this morning? Anybody want to be pure? Anybody? No regrets, no shame, no guilt. Well, the point of our gathering in worship is not for me to stand up here and say, y'all need to get your act together, clean yourself up. That's not good news. The good news is this. Church family, we 
have a firstborn elder brother high priest. And if we will see him in his word through the eyes of faith, he will cleanse us. He will purify us. He will wash us because that's what love does. By the grace of God, he tasted death for every one. And he didn't do this for angels. He did this for us. Fourth stage terminal cancer. That's not the kind of phrase you expect to hear in traffic court. In traffic court, fines are handed down, orders are given to appear at trial, guilty and not guilty pleas. But who, who pleads, I've got cancer? Yet there he was. This man was about 60 years old. He was still standing, but he had a profound sadness he was accused of several traffic violations. He'd run a stop sign. He used a cell phone when he shouldn't have been. He had some seatbelt violations. When the judge asked him how he pled, he said, Your Honor, I've just been diagnosed with fourth stage cancer. It's now all over my body. I forgive you. I, I plead with you to forgive my fines. A profound silence enveloped the courtroom. Finally, the judge spoke. Well, do you have medical evidence of your situation? The defendant took some papers from a folder, handed them to the judge, and after a brief reading, the judge said, okay, your fines are exonerated. You don't owe anything. As long as you are able, please drive carefully. You know at the divine throne of justice, our situation is not much different. We have stage four cancer of sin. And our symptoms include rebelliousness toward God, self-righteousness, a judgmental spirit, envy, pride, bitterness. And our sin is as attached to our being as the cancer in that man's story. And we cannot pay the debt before God. And our illness has no cure. But our story doesn't end at death because Jesus is no story. He's reality. He sustains ultimate reality by the word of his power. He took on our cancer. He carried it into the purity of his own soul. He suffered our pain. He took our brokenness. And on the cross, he took our cancerous soul into himself. And in a divine transfusion, he gave us his Holy Spirit, who is love and righteousness and holiness. And everyone who confesses the name of Jesus can claim before the divine judgment seat, I had the cancer of sin all over my body but Christ Jesus took it away Christ Jesus my warrior king my brother priest can you see him he's granted me the perfect health of his entire life so that I can live with him in eternity his grace is why I can preach verse 18 for because he himself suffered when tempted he is able to help those who are being tempted. See Jesus, our warrior king, our brother.